wonderful themes in our singing, in your singing. Hopefully we'll connect some of those right to our study in God's Word. It's funny how God works that out sometimes. Uh, one more announcement I'd like to make. I want to say congratulations. I saw Pastor Nathan here. There he is over there. And so congratulations. We have uh, Lucas Michael Barrett, born on his due date. Is that correct? And on the 22nd. And so same as my daughter. And so make sure you say congratulations to uh, Pastor Nathan. Anna's not here, I assume. All right. He'll tell her to. All right. Good. We won't send the church police after her. She's just fine. And, uh, but you don't look tired at all, Nathan. I would, I would expect you're changing all the diapers. So we appreciate Pastor Nathan, he and Anna's ministry. Appreciate the youth sponsors who have stepped up in the past week and filled in, and uh, they're always faithful. But do make sure you give him a congratulations and maybe an uh, emergency or some kind of a uh, wake-up wake up pill or something like that if you can. He'll need that. We're thankful for him. We're thankful for our study and I'm going to ask you to bow with me one more time as we look into God's Word. Heavenly Father, as we approach your Word now, we come to it with an understanding that this is your instruction for us today. And while we go through some parts of the Scripture and some will stand out as our favorite or some that we'll want to return to again and again, some are very, very colorful and very practical for life. Some might uh, resonate with us on one specific day where it has not, even over years of reading it. And we thank you for the supernatural book. I would ask that you would help me not to get in the way this morning. Hide me behind the cross of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit be, be very present with those who know you as their Savior today. And for those who might not be following you, may the Holy Spirit be pricking hearts, working in them in their story to bring them to you. We thank you that we can study your word. Bless it now in Jesus' name, amen. I want to ask you to participate just a little bit uh, at the start of our message today. I want to take you back in your minds and maybe to your childhood, maybe to a different time, but I want to ask a question and I want you to try to picture either a name or a face in your past. I want you to try to think of the most memorable storyteller that you have ever experienced. Who, and don't say it out loud, but you can go ahead and think of them right now, think of their name. Who is the most memorable storyteller that very possibly you have ever experienced? I see some people whispering, you might be talking about maybe a parent who could make a story come alive. Maybe you're thinking of another relative, maybe a grandparent who had a wonderful way of telling a story in a colorful fashion. Maybe you have a teacher that's, for me, the most vivid memory of a story that I can remember. I was in the third grade, and I can remember being in class, and we had a story time, um, a section where the teacher would read from the book, and this book just came to life. It was just incredible. Um, as I, as a child, listened to my teacher, Miss Paradisi was her name, and she read the book Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, and that became one of my favorite stories after that. And I've had the opportunity to watch that movie now again and again with my family, and there are things that stick in my mind. When you think of a storyteller, perhaps it is the connection that you have with them. Maybe it was an ability with their tone of voice or the ability to build, to build tension into a story. As we examine God's Word, I love that we find throughout God's Word stories. Now, when I say that, don't get, um, you know, uh, too defensive and say the Bible's not just a bunch of stories. We know that. It's God's Word. We've already referenced that today. 
But there's no doubt that one of the things that makes the Bible so amazing to us is the ability to read these true stories. And by the way, whenever you're watching a movie and you see right there, based on a true story, it takes on a different flavor, doesn't it? That somebody actually went through that. What we have in God's Word is a record of true stories. And one of the best things about those stories is when we see an almighty, all-loving, all-patient God involved in some circumstance in this world, someone's life, and we see that God combined with an individual who was a faithful servant, someone who would take action. And some of you would say, well, yeah, that's, I'll accept that, but I want to suggest to you this. When I say those two things, that those two ingredients, an almighty God who's in control of all things and faithful men and women who are taking action, this is quite a problem for many individuals through the ages. I have chosen to, as we come to this next section in the book of Acts, to go ahead and um, just give us a little bit of teaching on a philosophy, on a, um, two truths that are in the scriptures that are impossible, really, to connect to each other. We're going to talk today about God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, and we're going to see that as we jump to uh, the story of the Apostle Paul and as he is in this incredible storm, this hurricane. Today, our study is going to lead us to one of the most common questions that people who are on their journey with Jesus Christ ask. And by the way, it's also a question that those outside of the family of Jesus Christ ask. Some people love to ask it. There are some individuals who will use this as ammunition to prove that there is no God. How can God be in control and sovereign over all things, which the Word of God teaches throughout? And how can it also be that at the same time, man is responsible for his decisions and can choose or not choose? This question comes into play when we look at some of the most important issues in life. When Jesus Christ left this world, Jesus Christ gave his followers something that we call the great commission we cannot get away from this and so when we look at this incredible task that the church has that every follower of jesus christ has this is something that will make some people doubt and some people will maybe um, go too far on one side or too far on the other to the point where the great commission would become no commission and I think the devil is very strategic in wh where he puts thoughts and doubts and sometimes even in the name of something good, higher learning maybe, and it would make us ineffective. When we think of the Great Commission, this comes into play. Also, when we think of prayer, these give us a problem, don't they? We challenge people to pray. I, I, I challenge you on a regular basis. Talk to God. Ask Him for something. Ask Him to change something. Go before the throne of God on behalf of someone and pray. And so that's something that we do and we can be faithful and God's word commands it and yet God's in control of all things. And so it's very easy just to go ahead and jump to the conclusion, well, if God's in control and it doesn't make a difference what I do. These would seem to battle with one another. I mentioned earlier that those who would oppose God and his plan very much so love this conundrum that we would face. One of the most influential atheists of the 20th century, Jean-Paul Sartre, 
he would use this to influence millions or by process influence millions of people to where Sartre said this. He said, human freedom is the strongest argument against the existence of God. And so with this immense task ahead of us, what can we do with this? We study God's word. We see throughout it that God is in control of all things. God has known what was going to happen, either in your life or who was going to come to Christ, since before the foundations of the world existed. And yet Jesus Christ, when he was here in this world, he said, not just to the church and to Christians, Jesus Christ said, Come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Which is it? Does this leave us in a spot where we have to fall apart and lose our faith? I would suggest to you there are a lot of things that would maybe paralyze you. You're not going to want to get into a debate with someone who has studied some of these things that can really give you some zingers. And perhaps you'll have questions that you cannot answer. Two statements of truth. Salvation, let's relate it to salvation. Salvation is a work of God and solely a work of God. And yet, you are called to believe. If you want to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you are called to believe and you will be held responsible if you don't believe. And if you do believe, if you choose to believe, heaven awaits you. What can we do with these things? I'd like to give you an illustration if I can. I'm going to bring math into it, okay? We've talked about school already a little bit. Now I'm going to bring some math in. I know you kids thought you'd get another day off without math. And some of you grown-ups, can you remember the math you learned in school? Shake your heads yes or no. Okay, all right, just a few of you, good, all right. Most of us, boy, no, I can't help my kids with their math too much. I want to talk about a parallel line because as we approach this very difficult question, I want to give you this illustration of a parallel line. I'm going to hold my hands up. I'm not going to have you do it. This is not a perfect parallel line. If this were to go from infinity one way or the other, at one point, my lines would cross. But if you can imagine two parallel lines... That is the way that we need to understand these two truths. We have the fact that God is in control of everything. We have the fact that man needs to believe on Jesus Christ to be saved. And there are some very good communicators who will say at some point, maybe in heaven or in eternity, these will will cross and we'll understand them. Or at some point before maybe the world existed, they crossed. And you can't take it that way. Understand what a parallel line is. They are parallel. They will never intersect. They will never touch. You are not as smart as you might be and as good as an illustration as you might be able to listen to or come up with. You will never be able to perfectly make these mesh. And a challenge for me today is for you, here it is, just to be okay with you don't, the fact that you don't know why. To be okay with the fact that you can't come up with the answer. Some of you have discovered you can't come up with that answer of that very difficult question. You need to understand that's okay. Now, I'm not giving you an out to not study God's word. As followers of Jesus, we need to study to show ourselves approved unto God. We do not want to be ashamed in what we have done. But I'm going to let you know, with this thing, don't let it shake your faith. Don't let it deter deter you from doing what God has for you to do or deter you from studying God's word because of the deep truths that we can jump into. The fact that we cannot understand this, these two truths, that they coexist, they are twin truths, it doesn't say anything about God. 
Okay, God is not, um, he, it's, it's not that God is some kind of a faulty God. It's not that it's some kind of a problem with what he's doing. All it tells us is, it tells about our finite minds, our inability to reconcile these two together, that God is working and yet man is responsible. All I can tell you is these truths run side by side all throughout Scripture. How are we to respond to them? Well, with this one here, that God is in control, that God is sovereign, I would suggest to us that we are to respond with worship. This is to drive our worship. Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty. As we go through these beautiful songs and these themes, whether in the older hymns or the newer ones, there are so many beautiful teachings about our God. And when you understand that God is wonderful and beautiful and perfect and in control, and he knows you and loves you and holds you in his hand, it will drive you to worship. And when you have this one here, that man will come to Jesus Christ if he believes, that should drive your evangelism, your witness, Those of you who would shed a tear over someone that you know, maybe a relative or a co-worker that does not have Jesus Christ, and you come to a place where the light comes on and you think, oh my goodness, I need to share this with them. And here's the danger. The danger that I think the devil wants um, you to get into is to try to crisscross these or to try to let one hack away at the other, if I could say that. Perhaps you're familiar with one, an individual who is very strong on evangelism and so they would hack away on several things even to the point where they're going to try to um, do what they can humanly to make somebody be a Christian. You can't do that. You can't make a person be a Christian. Did you know that? You can't trick them. You can't play um, enough sentimental, sappy music at the end of a service to make their heart kind of sing. You can't stand before a group of young people, whether it be at a midweek club or vacation Bible school, and ask them specific questions. How many of you want to go to heaven? Raise your hand. Oh, me too. Repeat after me. We need to be very, very careful that we have the right approach to this. These would say they would would maybe go too far. They would use some tactics that would maybe hinder what we're trying to accomplish. And then those on this side would say God's in control of everything. I remember when I first came to someone to talk to them about this. I was a teenager, actually. This is the first time I'd heard anything of it. I was talking about it, and he said, well, God's in control of all that anyway, so it doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't make a difference if I do anything because God's in control of all of it. And when I first heard it, I thought, and I was young, and like I say, uh, young, and I said, that, I said to myself, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. Why would you say that? He had a good understanding that God is in control of all things, but what did he let it do? He let it hack away at the job that God has given us. And you cannot let one of these attack the other. It is my personal opinion, so I always always pay attention when I say that. It means it's something that I feel and that you also um, just be guarded when you listen to it. It's my personal opinion regarding this area in salvation that if someone calls themselves something like a Calvinist or calls themselves something like an Arminian, and I don't want to upset anybody, but I'm just going to let you know, if nobody's getting saved, who cares what you are? Why do you care what you call yourself if you're not seeing fruit? Jesus Christ gave us a commission. Jesus Christ brought somebody across your path in this past week. And there needs to be a deep understanding of God's word and who he is and how wonderful it's going to be in eternity and a deep understanding of what you are supposed to be doing in this present world.
You will not have the opportunity to invite somebody to church after you are taken out of this world. You will not have the opportunity to give a gospel track or tell someone, I'm a Christian, once your time in this world is over. That's why God has left us, to produce fruit, to glorify Him. And we'll have all kinds of eternity to sing and to praise and to worship. We'll do some of that now, but it needs to be coupled with this responsibility. We do not, we, we, we must guard against choosing between doctrine and duty. Doctrine and duty go together. So study to show yourself approved. Keep a tear somewhere available. Don't become so hardened. And don't use God as a cop-out that he knows what's going to happen anyway, so it doesn't matter what I do. Why in the world would you want to be in this world and not be used to tell someone about Jesus Christ? Why would you want to spend the 60 to 90 years you have in this world and not be doing that? As we look at this story today, we're going to see these two things, God in control and man being faithful. If you're not already there, turn to uh, Acts 27. Acts chapter 27, please, if you're not already there. I'm going to back up just a little bit to set the tone for us. Let me read verse 20. We, did, we covered that last week, but it'll give us a great picture of where these guys are at. Some of you missed last week's message. So uh, this will catch you up a little bit. Acts 27, verse 20 says, When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, here it is, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. If you're just now catching up, there is the Apostle Paul, there is Dr. Luke, there is Aristarchus, and they are in a large um, shipping vessel full of wheat, and they are traveling. Paul is going to Rome. He's got two believers with him, 273 unbelievers. And they try, they're traveling through a dangerous season as they're going. They had a chance to stop at Fair Havens, which is not a nice place to winter. And so like some of you, they wanted to winter in Phoenix, all right? If you've got your map from last week, you'll see on that island, they were leaving and going about 40 miles and trying to travel to Phoenix, not Phoenix, Arizona, okay? Sorry if I confused anybody. Not Phoenix, Arizona but Phoenix on this, island, of, uh, on this um, island that they were on. So as they were going to Phoenix, they could not make it. They take off, they thought they would make it, and yet the wind blows them contrary, and they, start, and they lose everything. They lose all control of the ship. And as they get out on the Mediterranean, they meet up with a typhoon, a hurricane. We've seen a lot of the hurricane, and maybe you're praying for the folks down there in Texas, and that will be um, in the path of that hurricane but verse 15 told us they gave way to it and were driven along. If you and I could go back in time and look through the portholes of this ship, I want to suggest to you that what you would see is you would see men who had their minds stayed on death. That's all they were thinking about, I think. All hope was gone of being saved. And I think they just thought it was a matter of time before they would go down. Can you imagine them huddled down there in this ship, in this huge storm blowing them um, just wherever it wanted to blow them and listening to the creaking of the ship and the wind blowing on that main mass and wondering if it's going to splinter and come apart and will they go down? I think the picture is individuals writing their last will and testament and hoping that someone would find it and pass it on to loved ones. 
And if you were to see the Apostle Paul at this time, I think what you would see is one who was, don't miss this, in perfect peace. He was at a point where he was in perfect peace because of God's promise. Isaiah 26, 3 says, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Now, Paul repeatedly works to encourage these folks. We talked about this previously in Acts 27. Paul stands up as an encourager. We also talked about the promises of God and how he never fails. And so now, as he approaches this group, he encourages them again. We're in verse 25. This is where we left off last time. He says, Take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. By this time, they have taken most of the cargo that they have and thrown it overboard. Who cares if you've got the cargo if you're going to go down, right? I think a lot of it might have been ruined uh, from the water anyway. They had thrown most everything overboard, and that brings us right to verse 27, where we'll start today. If you're taking notes, number one, the ship nears land. So the ship that had been blown finally comes near to land. Look at verse 27 with me. When the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. And so they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. So get the picture of what's going on here. As these... 276 men driven along. The Apostle Paul stands up and he says, we're all going to make it. Well, these experienced sailors get the idea that they're near land. They can't see anything, all right? The storm is forbidding them to see anything. They're being driven along. So how would they know that they were coming near land? James Smith wrote a commentary on this um, over 100 years ago, and it's the most noted commentary that I've come across. And he gives some great um, wisdom when he talks about this, and he says, waves crashing could be heard as far as a quarter mile from the shore. So the way that these sailors, experienced sailors, would know that they were nearing land, they suspected it, was because likely they heard these incredible waves crashing on the rocks. And this is good news for them to be near land, right? But it is good news, and it's also what? Bad news, because there's a big old ship, and it's heading right for the rocks of this small place. And so they measure, and they find out they are getting near, and they're getting near quickly. Instead of fathom there, we understand a fathom is, um, was the distance between the span of a man, about six feet is about what that is. So they measure and find out how close they are, and then they're getting even closer. And we've mentioned before that... Um, People outside of theologians have gone and used this story to um, mark um, nautical markings there. They look at this island, and it's all proven. It's amazing that the longer we hang around and study God's Word, the more we find up that science lines up with the Bible, and geography lines up with the Bible, and history lines up with the Bible. It always goes that way. And as much as someone would want to make you doubt your faith by hanging on to something that they would say is higher thinking, that should not make you think anything. You should just say, just wait. All things will be clear someday. They determined to let down uh, the four anchors in the rear of the ship and then wait for daylight. That takes us to verse 30, where we find some people seek an early exit, starting in verse number 30. And as the sailors were seeking to escape 
from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow now, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. And then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. All right. Um, I, I have not been on um, ships or boats very much. I don't have a lot of experience. But I do know this. If you're on a ship or a boat and you see the crew panicking, okay, that's a bad sign. If they are trying to get off and they're going to leave you, that is not a good thing. And that's what we find going on here. And the danger of the ship crashing into the rocks is in the minds of the sailors. And so they let down the smaller boat, the dinghy, if you will, under the pretenses that they're going to put some anchors out in the front of the boat now. But that's not what they're doing. They're attempting to desert the soldiers and the rest of the prisoners and anybody else on board. Well, Paul perceives this. Again, I don't know if it was something that God revealed to him supernaturally or if he had just been around long enough that he knew these guys were going to get off the boat. And it's a strange thing because the Apostle Paul has already said everybody's going to make it, and yet he says here, did you catch it? Unless these guys stay on board, you're not going to make it. Is this going to make you doubt your faith? Is this going to make you doubt your God? We see a man taking action and being faithful, and yet we see a God that is in control. I think the Apostle Paul knew that there was going to be some work ahead where they would need some experienced seamen. Can you imagine these seamen, and as they were um, working to uh, make the ship go in, uh, them being gone? Imagine these soldiers. Move the thingy over there. Raise the other thingy over there. They didn't know what was going on. The other thing. They would not know. And so as we see Paul, he says, we're going to need these guys to get ourselves uh, closer to the land. And we have here the dilemma, again, of God's providence and man's responsibility. Interestingly enough, John Calvin said this, it is odd that Paul said that the rest could not be saved unless the sailors remained on board, as if it lay in their power to nullify God's promise, which it did not. We know that God is not tied to the means, but if you've been paying attention to our study in Acts, you will see that what God uses more than anything else, I think, is God uses the means. Too many people are hanging around waiting for a miracle. They're waiting for God to do something that would be unexplainable, and that'll drive their faith. And what you need to understand is that what God uses more than anything else is the regular means of life, the everyday And you, listen, for every one of us, you have no idea what has been going on in this person's life and this person made this decision and this person brought this along and then this weather happened on this day and this took place. All of these, can I say, millions of different things that God is working together perfectly to bring about what he wants. God uses the means to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. Now, I'm not saying that you're not going to see a miracle, but I'm saying that you're going to see God working a whole lot more in what seems like the everyday things of life. And I've already seen it today. I saw individuals and I had conversations already this morning that I thought, man, if I wasn't a believer, I'd say, what a coincidence. How amazing that I came across this person at this time in this place. 
I'm not going to give you a hard time if you use the word lucky, okay? I mean, I think it's just a word. I mean, it's just a battle we're not going to win to get people to make, the, make Christians have the word lucky a, a swear word almost, okay? I'm not going to go there, but I do want you to have within your heart to understand there's no such thing as a coincidence. There's no such thing as luck. God uses all of these things to accomplish his purpose. And listen, if you will open your eyes to it, if you will open your eyes to this God appointment with this person, if you'll open your eyes to this appointment in your life, whether it be something that you would call good or bad, and if you'll open your eyes to God using these things, you will be able to fly higher on the faith that God is building in you. You'll go in incredible ways in this world having wonderful confidence in him. Paul perceives their plan. He warns the soldiers, unless these men stay with you, you will not be saved And we know that God is not tied to those means, but he uses them. And Paul very much so believed that God was in control, but he knew that he would stand before Caesar. But it did not negate the responsibility for him to act. And so you don't know the number of individuals that are going to come to Jesus Christ. You don't know who in your family or in your workplace or in your neighborhood is going to come to Jesus Christ. God knows, but just the fact that he knows does not negate your responsibility. You have been called to work and to be faithful. And the Apostle Paul here knows that he's going to stand before Caesar someday. And yet he doesn't just kick back and put his feet up and say, okay, sirrah, sirrah, good for me. I'm sure Dr. Luke and Aristocrates are going to be good with me. But for the rest of you guys, we'll see. No, he is in it with them. And I think the decision to cut away the boat, it doesn't appear to be Paul's decision. We can't know for sure. But a good lesson from that might be if you don't take a moment to think, you might make a bad situation worse. And could I talk a whole sermon about that? And by the way, could some of you talk a whole sermon about that? If you don't take just a moment to think when you're in a bad situation, think about what you're about to do, you can make it a whole lot worse. The boat goes away, making it impossible for anyone to make it to land without being completely submerged in the water. But don't be too hard on these soldiers that do that. They had not eaten for two weeks, all right? If I've not eaten for two weeks, please don't take anything that I say seriously, okay? So let's cut them a little bit of slack here. And let's look at verse 33 where we see leadership by example. Leadership by example. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were all 276 persons in this ship. And so in the face of crisis, Paul stands up. And let me, just, let me just give you this application. This will resonate with some of you, I think. The Apostle Paul stands up and he speaks to them and it's a huge encouragement to them because, are you ready? He was right there in the storm with them. Paul was going through exactly what they were going through. Have you ever had someone try to give you comfort or maybe give you counsel in a very difficult time of life and they had not been down that road before? 
I've known individuals that have been through a tough time and they've even said, I will not even receive counseling or um, encouragement from a pastor who hasn't been through this kind of situation because they couldn't possibly understand. And so while we see the application that he was in the boat so he could empathize with them, let me go ahead and turn that around to some of you and say some of these things in your past that you've experienced, God has put them there And what you are is you're a steward of it. You're a steward of your pain. You're a steward of your past life, even if it's your sin. You are a steward of all of these things. The question is, what are you going to do with it? We need to be careful. And I'm giving you that as an encouragement, and it's the same encouragement I preach to myself, the pains and the hurts from the past. I'm a steward of that. What am I going to do with it? I've been through this uh, talk so many times that it's almost a knee-jerk response for me. I've had a couple times where Tina and I have been talking about um, a, a Christian who um, had gained popularity or some fame in some way, and there was sin. He was fallen. And if I'm with that individual ever, I need to be compassionate and let them, let them know maybe they're not, they're not there yet, but my knee-jerk response is, okay, let's see what they do with it. This Christian has a platform He's fallen, he's sinned, the world knows about it. What are they going to do with it? Are you gonna turn? Never be heard from again? Are you gonna just beg God to take your life or take it yourself? Or are you going to pay attention to what, with what God can do with that? The Apostle Paul is in the boat with them and he encourages them. He leads by example. There's no doubt that actions speak louder than words. And he says here, you guys are gonna need your strength because there's something coming that you're gonna need energy for, so eat. And so he thanks God in front of all of them and he eats the food. And this is an astounding scene here. Do you picture this? So remember this boat? All right, they put down four anchors. They're wondering if it's gonna pull apart at any time. And Paul blesses the food and he gives them something to eat. And we go from these people who were, if I can give this picture, writing out their last will and testament, had given up all hope to what I think is a fairly peaceful uh, room of individuals that are enjoying a meal at this point. What had changed? It wasn't their circumstances. They were still in the storm. They were still very much so in danger. So what had changed? It wasn't their circumstances. Instead, it was their attitude. And can I say today that you can have an incredible impact on people around you. Your attitude can have an amazing impact on people around you. For good and for bad yeah individuals that have a horrible attitude that just have the gift of complaining people don't want to spend time around them and yet we know misery loves company be an individual who can change someone else with your incredible upbeat attitude when they saw paul eating they were encouraged and they ate another example of faith and works combined and so now they throw out everything else They're near land. They've got the ship with the front of it or the boat or the ship with the front of it pointed towards the island and they're about to go. And so we see the shipwreck in verse 39. Now when it was day, they did not recognize land but noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea and at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders, then hoisting the foresail to the wind they made for the beach 
But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground, the bow, and it remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest upon planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. When we see this shipwreck, we also see that there were lives that were threatened and lives that were saved. The best, the best prospect that they had was this sandy beach, so they make a run for it, put up the sail, loosen the rudders, they cut the anchors, and they go. By the way, if you get an opportunity to make your way to this island, you will come across and you will find there that this place is called St. Paul's Bay for this reason. And the ship was stuck firm into the, into the beach where it went to, but on the rear of the ship, the, 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 the storm was continuing to break the ship apart. And so the soldiers talk about killing Paul and the rest of the prisoners. Can I just tell you, in the interest of being a good storyteller, and I hope to be someday, I hope that I get to tell my grandkids this story someday and to just make it as colorful as possible and look at what the Apostle Paul had gone through and this promise and now there's the shipwreck and now the soldiers make a plan to kill all the prisoners. And that's where we'll leave off today, grandchildren, I will say. We'll pick it up again tomorrow. No, 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 don't stop there. Because it seems like all hope is lost once again. These soldiers knew that if somebody got away, they would bear the punishment for the prisoner that got away. These soldiers are about to jump in the water. Do you think that they're going to leave some swords and weapons hanging on them as they try to swim to the shore? No. No. They're not going to have that advantage. And so God uses Julius to step in, and he says, we're not going to kill them. And not too many, and as we look at this, um, Paul's life is saved and the life of all of them is saved. And so picture, if you will, 276. Can you picture it? Are you good with picturing in your head? Imagine 276. I think it was probably a pretty high place they would have had to go off of. Maybe some jumped in the water, like in those movies, you know. Maybe some lowered themselves on ropes or on ladders in some way. But 276 individuals bobbing in this water. Some swimming for land, some grabbing hold of the stuff the stuff that was breaking apart from the storm. And so it came to pass that all were saved, just as Paul's God said they would be. Paul will stand before Caesar. Paul is being faithful. Here's what we have, an incredible God and his plan in his providence and a man who is faithful. And can I suggest to you today that if you know Jesus Christ, you have an amazing God who is in control of all things. He can do anything that he wants to accomplish in your life what he wants to accomplish. And when I referenced before the millions of things that are going on that you can't even see, that's what's going on. That's what God is doing. And we couple this with your responsibility, with what he has told you to do. Will you be faithful? What can you do? What can we do with this? Well, a couple different applications that I want to give you. The first one is trust God and do what is right. I know that's fairly vague, but I think it's a good lesson for us. Trust God and then do what is right. A second application is just the reverse of that. And I think in, in seasons of life, 
These will both apply. They'll be different. The second one is do right and trust God. Trust your God and then make sure you're being faithful to do what is right. And even when you're struggling with trust, I know we don't say that out loud, right? You don't say that in the hallway, do you, here at the church? I'm struggling to trust God this week. But you go through the same things that every man and woman goes through. And at those points, do what is right and still trust God. You've been given something. You've been given a stewardship. What God has placed with you and what you're gonna do with it and what you have in this beautiful life, whatever your story is, coupled with this incredible providence of God is what he's going to use to accomplish wonderful and beautiful and mighty things through you and through me and through our church fellowship. Let's pray. Gracious God, as there was this storm that these men were fighting and had given up all hope of being saved, as we see that at this point, we know that there are storms that come into our life. Heavenly Father, if I gave a moment for folks to list through and pray the storms they've been through, They'd be here all night talking about what they've been through in life. But I thank you that you're a good God. And I thank you that the God of all this earth will do what is right. And I thank you, God, that no matter who we are, no matter what our gifts or our background or our bents, I thank you that you use us for your plan and your purpose, that beautiful picture of the church and these many different kinds of people amazingly working together to accomplish what you have. With heads bowed and eyes closed, no one looking around, I'm gonna ask Joanna just to play something light on the piano, just something um, quiet. And if you would just take a moment to pray. Maybe you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ. We've been talking about Jesus. He died on a cross so that you could follow him with your life. You just need to turn to him, ask him to forgive you of your sins, make him your savior, and he will. Maybe you're here today and you're thinking about those storms, thinking about what God has made you a steward of, Pray over that right now. Thank God for it and ask him what he wants you to do with it.